All right, guys, welcome back to the Davis Fitness Method podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Davis, and today I have Stu Locke with me. Stu Locke is an incredibly intelligent individual as well as a super strong one, and I figured who better than Stu to have on and talk strength. Stu, for those who don't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, maybe some of your background? Uh, so my name is Stuart Ball, uh, Canadian by birth. I was born in Toronto, uh, grew up in the United States. Um, I am the head coach and managing partner of Kodiak Barbell. Um, so we uh, we coach powerlifters, all kinds of sports athletes. Uh, we also do nutrition. Uh, what got me into lifting weights was I, uh, I was a two-sport collegiate athlete. So I played uh, both football and rugby at university. Uh, and then that's what kind of led me down the rabbit hole that is powerlifting. And I've been coaching uh, powerlifting, at least in some capacity, since 2015, so right around eight years. Um, and it has become my life's magnificent obsession. Um, I think about it most of the day. I uh, spend a lot of my day researching it. I spend a lot of my day consuming content around it. And uh, yeah, I love it more than anything else. And it has given me uh, an incredible life and something I'm very grateful for. How do you think you kind of ended up falling in love with, you know, powerlifting? So um, I think it honestly came about just as a byproduct of like playing sports for such a long time. So the wonderful thing about sports is you had a set of rules. Um, you'd have a very objective outcome of like you either scored points or didn't score points. And the other team would have scored more points than you or less points than you. And if you scored more points, you win. If you score less points, you lose. Uh, and it, you know, there's this, uh, there's this degree of like indifference about it that I really appreciated where it's like, it doesn't matter how much it shared. It doesn't matter how slow you eat and fold. If the other team wins and you lose, it doesn't matter because you caring more about it or, or you thinking that you tried your best. It doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things if you failed. So, um, I found powerlifting was the closest analog that I could find when it comes to, came to kind of barbell sports, right? So when you think about Olympic lifting, it's not so much absolute strength. It's a lot more um, technique. And um, a lot of guys are limited just based on technique. It's not necessarily the strongest that win in Olympic lifting meets. Um, it's the most technically skilled who can then display the strength they have. Uh, and then strongman, you know, you have a huge variety of events, you know, revolving events. Um, and you can have the strongest guy in the world or the world's strongest man. And if he's getting a bunch of Vince that he's not naturally good at, he's not going to win. And, uh, you know, CrossFit's obviously just being fit. And then I was like, okay, the only thing left that's like truly objective that I have is probably powerlifting because it's very basic rules. And it's, did you lift this weight or did you not lift this weight? Did you squat to depth and stand up? Yes or no. Did you <clears throat> pause the bar on your chest when you bench and press it back to lockout? Yes or no. Did you hold the bar out lockout when you deadlift it? Yes or no. And that objectivity I found is uh, pretty closely mimicked the kind of indifference or callousness of sport. Uh, and that's what really attracted me to it. Cause I was like, oh, it doesn't matter how bad you want it. It matters, you know, how hard you worked for it and how much effort you've put in. And then the beauty of it is because it's a, it's an individual sport, it's not a team sport. You don't have to worry about other people letting you down. Are there like certain base, like foundational principles that you kind of like check boxes with for like clients when they first come on um like 
how do you ensure that that person is going to be successful in the long run while they're working with you? So it actually first comes down to kind of the psychology of the athlete and the psychology of the lifters. So um, I've gotten much more comprehensive with my intake process as time has gone on. Uh, and in fact, the intake process that we have now currently at Kodiak, which is with me and all of, uh, the other coaches is a two-part intake. So Jem, who's my wife, uh, does their actual kind of like injury history assessment, all that kind of stuff. And, um, she's the one who starts to first vet them out and see where they're at from kind of like a psychological perspective as well. Um, and so she's the person that one gives us their entire injury history, um, you know, exercise it on three indicator two, stuff like that. But she's the person that'll tell us like, Hey. You know, this person's a little bit more neurotic. Um, you know, this person's likely going to have a hard time with adversity in training, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, essentially I have a couple of preconditions for someone to be able to work with me. One, they have to be, especially with kids, new people coming on is they can't be, uh, they can't be super high on neuroticism, right? So neuroticism is like one of the big five personality traits is essentially like how strongly, um, you will have a negative response to an external event. Right. So let's say you're walking to work and you trip and you spill your coffee. A non-neurotic person would be like, well, that sucks. I'll just mix pre-workout and I get to work. Right. A neurotic person would let it ruin their day. They would go down the rabbit hole. And I'm sure you've had plenty of personal training science like that as well. And so, you know, in order to be successful in powerlifting, especially in the long term, you have to be pretty low in trait neuroticism. And oftentimes we get people who are very skilled lifters and come to us and they're high in trait neuroticism. And it's about putting, um, you know, uh, systems in place to help decrease that neuroticism. But that's the first thing is like, they can't be super neurotic. And then after that, like they have to have a baseline level of competency. And I also like just based on the, the cohort of clients that I have now, I don't really attract more beginner lifters or beginner athletes. Um, we do have a place for that within the company. Um, and in fact, you know, a fellow Seattle resident, Kyle McKee's the guy that does that, right? So Kyle's the one that handles our more, uh, beginner lifters and he's the guy that handles, you know, the newer people. And then they're essentially in the Kodiak pipeline. And then based on where they get to as a lifter, they can be shuffled around between the coaches based on their need. But, um, yeah, the, the, I mean, the baseline level of competency is like, can you, perform some kind of squat, some kind of bench, some kind of deadlift, and then we can progress based off that. But it's not like you need to squat 500 pounds in order to work with us or anything. It's literally just, can you kind of make it look like this? And then we can figure out the rest. And then you just can't be super neurotic. What, um, so I know with all these and you have court, like full-blown courses on each one of these lifts, but are there things that people could um, focus on? Are there main things where people fail inside of these lifts like squat, bench, and dead, where if they prioritize some of their time and energy, they would see more benefits than, I don't know, like typical accessories? Because like a lot of people, like they think they're going to improve their lockout on their bench by putting a block on their chest um, or, you know, various things like that. Um, where do you think most people fail? Um, do, is there a place where most people fail? Uh, is it kind of all over the board? Yeah. So I think from an overarching perspective, I think the easiest, the, the easiest way to express how most people fail is a lack of repeatability, right? So it's, you know, we can go down the rabbit hole of like this person fails here and this person fails here and et cetera, but at its core, 
powerlifting is three one like three singles of squat, three singles of bench, three singles of deadlift. And if you want to have a high degree of success in the sport, your first, your second, your third attempt, all of those lifts should look reasonably similar. And, you know, if there's one piece of advice I can give any person that's getting into kind of powerlifting for the first time is that if you're doing a set of five, rep one needs to look like rep two, needs to look like rep three, needs to look like rep four, needs to look like rep five. And you need to figure out what you have to change in your technique and what you have to do differently to increase that degree of repeatability rep to rep. But the lack of repeatability time and time again is what I see kicks people in the ass. Um, and the easiest way to increase that repeatability is through increased frequency, right? So, you know, if you're doing, let's say one squat a week, one deadlift a week, and then two presses a week, the chances of you having a, a relatively refined squat pattern is probably going to be low, right? You know, it's going to be a full calendar week before you're back to that day again. It's going to be a full calendar week before you're back to squatting. So the chances of it being a nice one pretty low if you were squat two three days a week and it doesn't necessarily have to be with a barbell right you don't necessarily have to put a bar on your back uh you know you can do you can do a high bar one day you can do goblet squat the next day and you could do a hack squat on the third day but just like getting consistent exposure to those patterns on a more consistent basis is going to increase our body's awareness of how those movements work and our body's ability to put itself in the right positions in space and the same thing goes for the bench and the same thing goes for the deadlift, right? It's most people, most of the time, how I used to train all of my general population clients is they did some kind of squat three days a week. They did some kind of inch three days a week, and they did some kind of pressing three days a week. And that would differ, you know, and it would change over the course of the week and it would change over, or, uh, playground to playground, but giving them that consistently high exposure to that and, and this consistently high frequency allowed them to refine that pattern a lot more quickly because it's going to be two days or maybe a day before you're back doing it again. So it's more fresh in your mind. And I think frequency is, um, is a very misunderstood concept. And I think for us, like, you know, I'm, I'm sure you were much the same as like a lot of the first programs that I read were on bodybuilding.com and you're like, fuck, you know, chest day and back day and leg day and arm day. And then I have to take two days off and then I have to repeat that cycle again. It's like, Okay. So a lot of these kind of foundational tenets or understandings of how people think programs should be is based on like incorrect first principles or like faulty information that is setting kind of our ideas surrounding it all. Um, and so what I would say is like frequency is going to be the best thing. Increasing repeatability is going to be the best thing. Um, and if most people like I'm pretty confident in saying, like, if you had a, if so you had a guy that came to you, total general population guy, I'd never trained before. If you gave them a high frequency model where they're doing those things three days a week when they're seeing you in person, within six months, they would have developed a high degree, high enough degree of repeatability that you could put a bar on their back, you could put a bar in their hands, and you could get them to deadlift and they would be fine. Hmm. So each one of those patterns three days a week. Yeah. And again, you always want to be conscious of the fact that we wouldn't want to be going heavy three days a week with each one, but like, you know, just like I gave you the example of like what I used to do with a lot of my general population clients is like day one, they would do SSB squat to a box, right? So it's pretty easy. And then they would do like 
machine flat press, and then they would do like a kettlebell deadlift. And then day two, they would do like goblet squats, dumbbell flat bench, and, you know, maybe an actual dumbbell RDO. And then day three, they might go and do hack squat, you know, or like a goblet box squat. And then they would do, you know, maybe like a Smith machine flat press. And then they would do like trap bar deadlift or trap bar stiff leg. Right. And so, and essentially all we do is like the more accessory type of those exercises, right? So like if you're doing goblet squat, you're probably going to be doing sets of 12, sets of 10 to 12, or a little bit more reps, a little bit more hypertrophy. And then the heavier, more easily loadable stuff, like the trap bar or the SSB or whatever, you're going to probably have those lower rep range. And then, so what naturally kind of occurs over the course of the week is you have a combination of higher rep range stuff and lower rep range stuff. You have a combination of heavier and lighter stuff. And so it's not that they're having like a really hard time recovering from it because in actuality, like each session is probably stressing them in a slightly different way. Um, and the big thing too, is especially with newer people, their ability to recruit enough muscle to cause fatigue is actually pretty low. And that's the thing that a lot of people forget, right? It's like fatigue is not really something that we should take into account with like newer trainees or general population trainees, because they don't know how to motor coordinate well enough to cause fatigue in the first place. At what point would you begin to worry about fatigue? Like, is there a certain amount of weight somebody's lifting where you're like, okay, now like maybe you shouldn't be deadlifting three days a week. Yeah. I mean, I think what it comes down to too is, um, where you start's where you're going to end up. And what I mean by that is like, if you have someone who from the outset has been exposed to like two to three inches a week, they're pro- that's where their base has been built from the start. Um, and when we start to worry about fatigue is more so like when we start to start to track subjective markers of fatigue, right? Like, how are you sleeping? How's your soreness and use muscle? How is your motivation to train? How is your sex drive? How is your appetite? Um, you know, when, because you have trained general population people in person for quite some time, you know, those are the questions that you ask when they're warming up, right? Like, how'd you sleep last night? I was stressed at work today. Like all the little questions, because you're starting to calibrate and figure out where they're at the session. And in actuality, like, dude, with general population clients that like squat less than two plates, bench like less than a plate and deadlift like two plates, uh, I don't know. I deload them like every six to eight weeks, maybe. And the deload would just be like switching to a different style of programming. And they're going to be bad at it. So the first two or three weeks, so they're not still going to have a decrease in weight. Um, but I think the, the idea of fatigue just in general is really like, it's really, really overstated. And its effects are really, really overstated in an acute sense, uh, and are really overstated in kind of like a chronic long-term sense. And so you know, good example, right? Let's say we put together a really good training week for Steven and we figured out, you know, a great collection of exercises that are going to get you stronger on a week to week basis. And every week you can come in and you can add five to 15 pounds on those exercises. Let's say at the end of the block, at the end of four weeks or at the end of five weeks, you were up 30 or 40 pounds on all of those exercises. And you've set a PR in that final that also shows that even under a high degree of fatigue, because at the end of a block, fatigue is supposed to be the highest, even under a high degree of fatigue, we were able to perform well and we were able to hit a PR. So 
it's likely that this idea or concept of fatigue has really been played out or overplayed by people. Um, and in actuality, like most people, most of the time can train with small modifications, uh, for an extended period of time without needing to take a break. And if we are trying to build people with resilience, or are we trying to build people who can handle a sufficient amount of work, treating them like they're broken and that they need to take time to rest every three to five weeks is a bad way to do it. Yeah, I heard, uh, I've heard Shallow mention like there's like a 30% window where it's like you don't want to go like 15% below or like 15% above too quickly or for extended period of time because you'll A, either detrain them or B, like potentially like overwork them too quickly. Yeah. Um, so kind of staying in like that range, right? Like there's some, you know, I guess thought process where some people believe where oh, you need to take time off from actual, like, pure strength work and move more towards, like, volumes. Is that true? Mm -hmm. I would say that if you think that it's true, it's true. Okay. Um, so, I mean, like, the, the big thing that I think a lot of people forget uh, when it comes to training in general is that, like, the psychology matters a ton. And the psychology matters, I think, a lot more than people want to give it credit for. Okay. And it's like, if you think something's going to work, then it's going to work, right? Like, the placebo effect has a greater statistical significance than pretty much anything else, right? Is like, I always love to tell people the story of like, in the seventies, they had a bunch of college aged males and they told them that they were taking steroids and they progressed the same as people that were actually being given steroids, right? So like uh, the athlete's belief in a system is going to account for a lot more than pretty much anything else. Um, but yeah, like it's, I don't know. I, th I think with a lot of this stuff, it is here in wise the right, right? Is we read these training texts, right? Or like translated Russian stuff, right? And when they talk about these kind of concepts of fatigue, Right. And it's like you read science, you practice the sport training, right? Well, and the big thing that they refer to in science and practice of sport training is in a lot of things that have unbelievably high volumes, right? So you look at someone who's doing, you know, the Russians used to do 13 training sessions a week for Olympic lifting. Bulgarians used to do 13 training sessions a week for Olympic lifting. And then you look at people who train to Casava. Like those people are having like 10 to 14 sessions a week, right? So it's like when we're talking about modifying intensity, all those sorts of things, that's more applicable to stuff that's really, really high intensity like that on a very consistent basis over a very long time than it is to something like powerlifting where people are going to be training for 10 hours a week, 12 hours a week, maybe. Right. And it's just like, you know, I think of a, a better way to look at it is just like, if we could design training in such a way that it eliminated the need for a consistent deload, what would training look like? Right? Because you said that you, you gave that, that 30% rule that shallow talk. You don't want to go too light because then you'll detrain. You don't want to go too heavy because then you'll, you'll, uh, cause undue fatigue. Right? So we can also just use that as kind of like a guiding precept or an idea regarding training in general, which is like most training should be in that kind of like 
65 to 80 percent range in that kind of rpe 7 to rpe 8 range where it's like it's meaningfully difficult but it's not so much that you're smoked leaving the gym right like the average lifter should leave being like you know what like that was a hard session but i feel pretty good and i'm i can like go home and i can eat and relax and i can train again tomorrow like that that's probably going to lead to better long-term results than trying to apply and then misapply just kind of like esoteric or difficult to understand concepts from Russian sport training literature that might not even be translated properly. <laughs> Fair. So like, um, so for somebody who's like, okay, well they hear this, okay, 30% up, down, whatever. And let's say you maybe for a period of time or not, they're not maybe doing like their sumo dead off the floor, but maybe they're doing like a, a block pull or maybe they're doing like a deficit pull. How do they know, okay, like with the block pull, I should be doing X amount more or with the uh, deficit, maybe with a pause, like I should be doing this much less. Are they just judging it off of RPE? Yeah. So I think, it, you know, when we go, because there's a couple of things, right? Is when you try to mark like, and this was like a poll. Right, where he's like, yeah, you got to be able to front squat eighty percent of your back squat, and you're just like throwing random numbers. Uh, if, for example, right, so the most I've pulled sumo is three hundred fifty-five kilos, so seven hundred eighty-two pounds. I also broke my back in two thousand eighteen, and the most I've ever stiff legged was like maybe five hundred for five, but that's like what sixty percent or sixty-two percent. If the, so if someone looks at me as a trainee without having any of that underlying knowledge, you're going to be like, that dude's super shit at stiff legs. If we got his stiff legs better, sumo would go, right? But it's like, okay, but what you don't see just based on the number and the amount of reps is that my RPE for that or my level of strain or my level of relative intensity is very high. So when we're, we're looking at these exercises, one, the longer you do an exercise, the better you're going to get at it and the higher percentage of your action you're actually going to be able to do. But two, when we have exercises that are like quite dissimilar from the competition pattern, we need to use re markers of relative intensity, not absolute intensity, right? So when we think about those two concepts, relative intensity is how hard was this on a scale of five to 10? Five is like, that's pretty easy. That's a warm up. Six is like starting to be kind of hard. Seven is like, that's probably actually a working set. Eight is like, I can probably get two reps now. Nine is like, I could have done one more rep and 10 is like gun to my head you're not gonna be able to do another rep, right like that's what rp is and most of our training should be in that rp7 rp8 range sometimes as high as rp9 sometimes as low as rp6 but if we're using uh percentages based on the person they're just they're going to fail to accurately determine how hard the person needs to push because I'm sure you run percentage-based programs before, and it's like this weird, shitty balance where, like, for the first two or three weeks, it's not hard enough, and then it gets way too hard really quickly. And you're like, this seems like, this seems like it's inefficient. Like, this seems like a fuck-up. I actually, I actually suffered my first back injury, like, trying to get into a powerlifting program where I was, like, running these percentages, like, jumped up. It wasn't, like, the first couple of weeks, but it was, like, as I was going through and then all of a sudden it was, it, I didn't like actually do, I don't think I actually did anything to my back, but I woke mm -hmm. up one day and I was like, <laughs> like my whole, 
shit was seized up and like I'd had nerve pain to the bottom of my feet, but it wasn't like I don't think I tore anything, but it was just like yeah. my body was like, no, no, no more of that. Yeah. And and it's and it's interesting, right? So when we think about the idea of fatigue or workload or managing those sorts of things, um, you know, that for you, like what you just described is like kind of the basic tenets of like what would be a disc injury, right? So you have like radiculopathy, which is like you have nerve pain down into the feet or like nerve pain away from the site of injury, which is in your back. Um, and so that typically happens because like these structures that are in soft tissue in our body, right? So like you have muscles and that's soft tissue. And then you also have shit like ligaments and tendons and discs and bone. Those recover at different rates, right? And so a muscle is going to recover much more quickly than a ligament or a tendon. And a disc is going to have a finite amount of ability or load place through it before we start to have issues. And, you know, obviously like trunk stability is going to be able to effectively buffer that force into, let's say, your legs as opposed to your low back. Um, you know, that typically is indicative of like this person was likely, this person likely started with too much volume and, you know, what we know kind of about discs over time, uh, is that they're kind of disc issues are worse in the morning. Um, just based on the, on the anatomy of how a disc works. Um, and so it was likely that you, you over a consistent period of time, probably three, four, five, six weeks, we surpassed our ability to recover. And because the program wasn't tailored to us, we surpassed our ability to recover because it wasn't taking into account our individual markers of fatigue. And then we ended up with this weird, weird kind of dissy thing that took us out of commission. But when we think about the basics of prescriptive exercise, we have to develop, you know, that golden plan for Stephen Davis. That's not going to be, you know, this percents and percentages of reps that's like, and it's always like the fuck the names of the programs are always insane. It's like fucking Bulgarian death method pro, you know, and you just like ridiculous shit. And you're like, you fucking hurt your back. Are you surprised? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but yeah, like it's just, you know, with stuff like that. And it's like from a chronic perspective, you're likely fatigued and you likely started to, you know, in week six, seven, eight, whatever, starts to have higher percentage of reps that were a low degree of repeatability. We started to stress structures in our body that we shouldn't, uh, you know, we started to dump load out of things like our muscles and into things like our structure, like our ligaments and our tendons and our discs. Uh, and then that was the result. Yeah. And so I think the, so I think the main, I think the main thing was like, I had muscles that like had not gone through the, uh, higher percentage effort like <laughs> lifts so like i'd never i basically never done that i probably never really went above i would imagine 80 percent. like i wasn't one rming ever so it was like literally just like bodybuilding 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 style training and e even if i did something that was like in a three or something it would be like for like high velocity or like jumps or stuff like that so it was more of that yeah. stuff and then when i started doing strength stuff it felt like i was like oh i'm getting strong fast but it was like I had never done that stuff. So I was just like, I over, I'm certain I overloaded too, too quickly now, just kind of looking back on it. Mm -hmm. So, um, what I, one, one thing I wanted to ask you, um, like you're talking about repeatability. We're t also talking about RPE. Um, if somebody's performing the exercise 
with a low degree of repeatability, but they're rating it at like an RPE 7 or an RPE 8. Is it truly an RPE 8 or 7? If like, for example, if somebody's like bench pressing, but every time maybe the, they, they get their hands too low and their shoulders kind of pop up internally, rotate the shoulders and they kind of dump it back. Mm-hmm. Does that, is that count as an RPE 7? Would you? Yeah. And it's, so we have to be able to differentiate between two things, right? So like I always tell people RPE is like, it is reps relative to failure. Um, but it's also like, let's say you're playing football and you get an end around and you get hit by the linebacker and then you get hit by the defensive end. And then you like fall into the end zone and score a touchdown. And it was super ugly and it wasn't great, but you scored a touchdown. The objective measure at the end is that you scored a touchdown. So the objective measure at the end for the RP7 or the RP8 is just that you had two reps up in tech. If you have shit technique, that's a separate distinct issue that doesn't necessarily, and shit technique is going to limit our ability to act. Like if we have really, really bad technique, we're going to have inaccurate ratings of RPE, but I can't tell a client that their perceived exertion is wrong. I can say from my perspective, I don't think that that's correct. And I think that we have shitty technique, but I'm not going to say that that wasn't an RP seminar, wasn't an RP because that's their rating of perceived exertion. Uh, and so I think those are two, those are two issues that people seem to conflate a lot of the times. And a lot of that also comes down to depending on where an athlete is, you know, in beginner, intermediate, advanced, elite, um, from a classification perspective, like we, we develop the program in a different way, because if you have someone with a low degree of repeatability and they're doing high rep sets, no shit, all of the reps aren't going to look the same. So maybe we modify the training program to give them less reps per set, to give them a better chance at having a high degree of repeatability. And then once they've improved their technique and that motor pattern is a little bit more uh, dialed in, then we can start to taper up the amount of reps over time. But, you know, their rating of that event and how ugly that event looked are two um, related but different issues. Have you had where clients are, um, maybe they're like trying to get to something that's like RPE 7 or RPE 8, and it's like first set, they're like, okay, that was a 7, they add you know, a little bit of weight so they can try to get to the eight. They're like, oh, that was also a seven. They add a little bit more weight again. And they're like, that one's seven. And so now they're three sets in all of these sevens, but now you're at like 20 pounds apart. Mm-hmm. Were they all RP seven? Um, or were they like, what's going on there? Okay. So, and then, and this is where, this is where RP becomes this like kind of hard to understand concept, right? So I have, RP7, which is like, I'm not listening to music. I'm not hyped up at all. I'm not excited at all. I'm going in and I'm listening. I have RP7 where I'm lifting, listening to music. I have RP7 where I'm listening to music and sniffing ammonia. And then I have RP7 where I'm listening to music, sniffing ammonia, getting slapped in the back, and it's in the meat. There's probably going to be 150 pounds difference between those RP7s. That doesn't mean that those are the wrong. It just means that based on your psychological state, that perception of effort is different. And so likely what will happen in people who are not so great at or sure determining what their RPE is, it's likely that a scale hasn't been calibrated and they don't actually know what RP7 feels like because they don't know what RP10 feels like. So 
it's a, it's actually kind of indicative that this person probably has never meaningfully pushed a failure on anything. And that is much more likely why they've listed three sets that are 20 pounds apart, all at RP7. It's like, cause they've never taken anything to failure and they've never taken that exercise to failure. So they don't know what taking that exercise to failure feels like. So then they can't work backwards to figure out what RP7 feels like. They're just like, oh, that was kind of hard. That was kind of hard. That was like, that's what their RP7 is. It doesn't mean three reps left in the time. Right. Do you, do you think that people need to work up to that? Like I can't lift it or failure point like often, or how often should someone do that if they've never done it before? So in newer beginner trainees or general population clients that you have coming in, you need to get them to understand the, the capacity of like, like actually pushing to failure or straining in very safe, very external stabilized exercises, right? Like reaching concentric failure uh, on shit like leg extension and leg press and a machine chest press and like things that were like, you can be an idiot and still not get hurt. Um, and then you populate that in because here's the thing when we're going to go like a, a newer trainee most of their training for the first six to nine months all that mean lift stuff like all of the meat and potatoes of their program is probably done with pretty low rpe it's probably all rp5 or rp6 because we're trying to ingrain that pattern well and then what they're likely doing is moving meaningfully close to failure on their accessories that are more externally stabilized because there's a low chance that they'll hurt themselves and then when that client graduates from beginner to intermediate, then you can start to meaningfully push to failure on these less externally stabilized exercises, maybe things like dumbbell press or maybe things like, you know, close grip bench or whatever, because they're competent enough with those patterns that they're not hurting themselves by pushing to failure. Um, but that's what I would say, like their perception of intensity on the main list stuff as a beginner is inaccurate because they haven't pushed a failure, but it's also not really necessary because we want to run very basic, very slow linear progression with these people, you know, adding two reps a week or adding five pounds a week. And they're not really going to be pushing on that main stuff until they've graduated to kind of an intermediate. I've heard you say things like, uh, like for bench press, like a strong upper back is required. Mm -hmm. um, when, when somebody hears that and they, they go to do, upper back stuff um is it important like the position that they're doing that in should it look a lot like their bench press or how should they be trying to set up their upper back work does it matter so long as they're just kind of feeling it in that general region yeah so i think the an easier way to explain it is going to be what do we need from our upper back in the context of a bench right so what we need from our upper back in the context of a bench is similarly pulled down as far as they can along the rib cage, and then shoulder blade once they're pulled back, pull in along the rib cage, right? So, you know, that's probably going to look like some low trap. That's probably going to look like some lat, and that's probably going to look like some rhomboid. So, when we say upper back, what we're actually saying is like these three muscles kind of in concert. And when we're programming our accessories, we have to be able to some points in the ranges of motion of those upper back exercises be hitting that same joint angle in position right which is that kind of shoulder extended position with our shoulder blades together and our shoulder blades down as much as we can and that's going to ensure that we know what that feels like 
when we go back to the actual bench press, right? And so when we say upper back work, yeah, it does matter a lot the way it looks um, because a fucking face pull probably isn't going to get you to understand what that sensation feels like. Yeah. So to answer your question, yes, it does matter a lot. Uh, and we have to remember the joint positions that we're trying to train in the actual bench press, which is stamps down and then stamps together. And then at least in some of our accessories, it doesn't have to be all, we try to train those same ranges. Would you say that there are exercises that are better than others? Like since we're trying to understand what that feels like with a barbell, would it be better to do it with a barbell versus doing it with dumbbells or whatever it gets them into that position? It's whatever's going to get them best into that position. And what, what we know about human beings is that they're typically asymmetrical. So when you have an implement like a barbell that doesn't allow for free movement of the hands, it also doesn't allow us to train that asymmetrical nature of the human being, right? And so for most people, most of the time, like dumbbells and cables are going to be a little bit, or dumbbells, cables, and machines are going to be a little bit more effective than a tool like barbell. Uh, when it comes to training those positions. And also when it comes to just training in general, like I, I would say from an accessory exercise perspective, we can view, you know, most people most of the time are going to be better served by machines, some cables, and some dumbbells. And with their main lifts, like the heavy stuff, they're going to be better served by the barbells. How, right tool for right job. Okay. So how do you, um, with with clients that are like maybe struggling with some of these uh, positions. So like if it's like with their bench, they they're maybe dumping a bit more into internal rotation and then with their uh, squat, maybe, you know, similar thing at the shoulder, maybe that's the same issue presenting itself where they're having a hard time maintaining external rotation so that they can get some tension in their lats. Is there a certain way that you go about approaching that? Yeah. So it's, um, a lot of it is like how aware of where your bicep was, were you after the first time you got like a wicked bicep pump? You were like, yeah, I, I know what my bicep feels like. Yeah. I know what they need by pump. I know exactly where that muscle is. And if you asked me any day of the week, I can point to it and tell you. So when we're thinking about training these muscles for the first time, and when we're thinking about training these muscles in a way that that person's going to remember, the pump is one of the easiest ways for us to remember. So that's like really gross high rep stuff, right? Like sets of 15, sets of 20, sets of 30, where they're like, by the end, they're like all of the muscles associated that you've asked me to use to put that shoulder blade into that position are now full of blood. I know where all of those muscles are on my back. Tomorrow I'm going to wake up and be like, oh shit, because I can feel all those muscles on my back. And it's... uh it's a really easy way to do it. So, you know, like one of the things that I love to have people do is like, you just do a body weight inverted row, right? So feet up on a bench, living onto a, living onto a ball and then they just pull their shoulder blades down and then they just row. Even the same position that they would touch the bar in, in their bench press to failure. And they're going to do, you know, three or four sets to absolute failure. And then magically the next morning, they're going to wake up and be super sore. And they're going to be like, I know what he means by shoulder blades together and down. And I know what muscles I have to use to get my shoulder blades together and down because they're all very sore. Do you have people when they're a bit more, um, maybe 
beginner or potentially intermediate who kind of struggle with when you're saying shoulders back and down, like tucking the elbow in too close to their side or like. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a very, very common presentation that we have. Uh, and a lot of that comes down to just like a lack of scapular awareness in general. Right. So you're in Seattle, there's a ton of tech bros in Seattle. They all sit in front of computers all day and code and they all have terrible posture. Right. And so the greater the degree of kyphosis or upper back rounding someone has, probably the less chance that they're going to be able to understand where their shoulder blades are in space. So there is a degree of scapular awareness or positioning that we have to have before we can start to train these positions. Um, so there's, you know, from just a an entering perspective, the first thing that you would want to do is get them into sufficient thoracic extension that they understand what a thoracic extended position feels like, right? And you're going to need to do some combination of mobility to get them into thoracic extension. And then the second thing that you need to do at that point is to get them to understand what it feels like to depress your shoulder blade. And you're going to get them to understand what it feels like to retract your shoulder blade. One of the best things that you can do for that um, is scapular cars, right? So uh, controller articular rotations is like a tentative FRC or functional range conditioning. Um, getting people to do quadruped scapular cars as part of the warm up and having them move through elevation, depression, retraction, protraction after they've worked on their scapula or after they've worked on their thoracic mobility is going to then allow them to be like, oh, I get it. This is what it's supposed to feel like. This is where I'm supposed to put it. And then when you tell them, hey, you need to depress your shoulder blade, you know that they can get their shoulder blade into that position because they did it in their warm up. And you know that they have the muscular capacity to do it because you saw it. Yeah. When, uh, when you first get people or maybe somebody who's like more beginner trying to do those quadruped, so like on all fours, mm-hmm. uh, scapular cars, do you see that they're more moving the rib cage around the scaps than they are moving the scaps around the rib cage? That pretty much every time. And you know what? It's not even in general population or anywhere people. It's pretty much every time. So what I typically tell people to do is I get them to sit back just a slight bit and I get them to exhale and draw the rib cage down and back. And I'm like, okay, so we sat under her haunches and back with the rib cage down and back. We're going to walk her hands back. Now your rib cage has to stay in this exact same position. Your arms have to stay flexed. We can only articulate at that scapula of thoracic joint. Yeah. So we set them up and we give them a constraint in such a way that they're forced to move just at that joint. And then at first they're going to be really shit at it. At first, they're going to have a hard time getting into some of those positions. And then the more reps they do, it's going to start to open up. It's going to start to open up. It's going to start to open up. And it's not necessarily that they're gaining additional mobility through this. They're just developing that motor. Right. And so at first, because they don't have that motor pattern, a lot of people feel like though I've, I've heard people say things like my body doesn't do that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then you know, you can always be light-funded about it, right? You can always be like, oh my God, you're you're a medic and you're, you're the only person in the world who's never been able to depress their shoulder blades. I'm going to call the university and they're going to do a study. And then they'll be like, oh, haha. It's like, everyone can do this. You're just bad at it. Right. What, um, so uh, at, at first, when somebody's trying to go through that, if they, if they feel like they're struggling more than average or anything like that would you try to just find more positions to put them in that would expose them to that yeah 
and that's a really great way to do it, right? It's like, okay, we're really shit at staff room mobility in our warmups and we really don't understand that. What external constraints can we use? What additional things can we use in training to get them to understand that a little bit better? And honestly, you know, it's going to be like making sure they're protracting fully on the rows, making sure that they understand when they protract that it's not just letting everything relax forward, it's actively pushing forward with our serratus, right? Making sure that like on all of their rows at the other end range, they're understanding to hold their shoulder blades together and not just pull their shoulder blades together, pull them together and down to maybe minute the positions that we have on our bench. Um, I don't know anyone, I've never coached anyone who's bad at scapular elevation. I think everyone can do that. Uh, but it, it's typically, you know, these ranges of protraction, retraction, pressing that they're really, really shit at. So making sure that they're getting there in their warm-up, making sure they're getting there in at least some of their training and making sure that on non-training days, they're getting there at least once or twice is going to make sure that, you know, after a couple of days, probably a week, they're going to be dramatically improved to getting into those positions just because they've been getting into those positions every day. How important do you feel unilateral movements are for things like the squat and the deadlift? So um, I have really kind of changed my opinion or changed my opinion on this as things that, like as I've kind of gotten older. So before I was like, well, ambulatory, we walk on one leg. It just makes sense that we would use unilateral exercise. And what I now kind of believe or understand is that if you are seeing a client who has some type of movement deficit or movement issue, then doing unilateral work to bring that up is going to be very effective. Outside of that inability, I keep some degree of unilateral lower body stuff into my squat and my deadlift, like maybe a couple of sets of walking lunges a week. So just so they're not like completely losing access to that ability or quality. Um, but I don't place a high priority on it, a super high priority on it. And, um, you know, in some of my more advanced trainees, like they might be doing two or three sets of unilateral exercises a week for the lower body. Like it's really not a lot of their training. Um, in an actuality, like having done a ton of unilateral lower body stuff and not done a ton of unilateral lower body stuff, I see about the same results. And if we've taken care of their warm-up effectively and we're getting the train the things that they're bad at, I've seen about the same results in terms of their pain. So um, when it comes to, like, if you fully pulled it out, do you feel like you're going to be able to maintain that same level of function once you once you've established good squat and deadlift patterns um i would say probably not right like there's probably some kind of baseline whether it's a warm-up or whether we're actual kind of working sets accessories after the main work that has to be right like i do walking lunges and knees over toe stuff in like all of my warm-ups right like i do single leg and KEs, like i do um you know i do walking lunges i do knees over toes walking lunges I do front foot loads, split squats. I can do all that stuff, warmups. Um, so I'm training that quality. I'm not necessarily training that quality in like an output context, right? Like I'm not trying to go to failure on these or push super hard on them. It's just to make sure that I still have that ability, right? It's like, you know, it's like 40 year old heard you. Is it true? If you don't use it, you lose it. Um, when it comes to these more kind of like unilateral or gate specific stuff, like you do have to have some degree of it in your program. It doesn't necessarily have to be rising to the degree of like 
I'm doing it as all of my loaded accessories after I squat or deadlift. Um, it can be just in the warmup and fuck, it can be just like on non-training days, right? Um, there's no real rules with it. And what I would say is you either add it in or take it out based on a deficit or an issue that the person has. And a lot of people like one client that comes to mind, um, you know, when he came to me, like he's a little bit asymmetrical, but a lot of his asymmetry in his upper body was due to, uh, like an asymmetry and thoracic rotation. And then once we cleaned up that asymmetry and thoracic rotation, a lot of his twisting or weird mechanics went away. And then his lower body was able to express evenly. And then his, because his lower body was able to express evenly, we meaningfully added to his squat and his deadlift by a lot. And he does like two sets of front fill oil still squats a week, even though he was a pretty asymmetrical person. So it's not like a, I don't, I don't think it's a, uh, I don't think it's an all or nothing thing. And I think a lot of people, because they don't really warm up, forget that you can just train these qualities in your warm up as well. Gotcha. Is there, um, is there in terms of like, you're not looking for an absolutely meaningful stimulus from that unilateral work. You want it in there, but maybe just to kind of check the gauges, so to speak, like just see how things are moving. But, um, if you saw somebody was maybe losing that quality or they felt they were losing that quality for some particular reason, would you then make it more of a priority or would you go back to seeing, Oh, is it more of this thoracic thoracic rotation or. Yeah. So I think it's where there's smoke, there's fire. Right. So, cause you're also, you have to be able to parse through information clients give you. And I know because you work in Seattle and you, there's a certain cohort of people that you work with in Seattle where they've never really pushed hard on anything and they don't understand what effort is and they don't understand what to tell you that's like relevant information but like i feel my shoulder when i do that and i'm like you should you're using your shoulder you know the exact kind of person i'm talking and when it comes to stuff like this like if someone feels like they're losing because i i've i have fielded that question or fielded that concern more times than i care to admit um and much more often, it's like, you'll get, you'll be like, well, I feel like I'm not as good at like unilateral stuff. And it's like, okay, well, like, are we competing in powerlifting? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, okay. So are you in pain? No. Are your lifts going up? Yes. Does it matter that you're losing that ball? Well, I don't know. It's like, okay, so you're not in pain and your lifts are going up and you, you're paying me to get your lifts up and get you out of pain. And they're like, yes. And I was like, so maybe we've placed too much importance on this as a quality or a concept. And, uh, I think it's, it's, it's really, really crucial that like we have like an effective bullshit filter when it comes to the information that clients are telling us. Um, because yeah, like there is going to be a group of people who like, you know, this happens very, very often in really, really high level, really, really developed squatters and deadlifters that your hips lose relative joint range of motions as you get strong, right? Your hips are going to have way better hip mobility, uh, 400 pound squat than they are at a 900 pound squat. And that's okay. And that's normal. And if we find that that person has lost so much hip mobility that they are in pain squatting to death, unilateral exercises could be an effective means of, of, of restoring that, but they are by no means a magic bullet. Um, and I think their value is overstated by a lot of people. Mm. Do you think that it would have more of a place in 
um, maybe more of an athletic endeavor that would take them through full gait cycle, like where they're like running or if they're like having to change direction or something like that. Massively. And I think that that's, that's where it comes down to the right tool for the right job. If you're getting someone just better at squatting, bench pressing and deadlifting, a lot of their stuff should look like those joint positions. And if you're getting someone good at moving, there's a lot of things that go into moving. So there's going to be a lot more exercises that you do. And there's going to be a lot more movement options and joint angles that you're going to be in and train compared to a power lifter. And I think a big mistake that a lot of people make is they look at sport training programs, like for actual sports, right? Cause powerlifting was like kind of a sport. Uh, if they look at like actual sport training, you know, for someone who's like running or someone who's playing football and they're like, well, that, you know, th these guys do it. So we got to do it too. It's like, well, no, cause they're actually trying to be athletic and you don't need to be athletic. So maybe don't worry about it. As much. All right. That brings me to a post that I saw you make not too long ago. And I want to hear a little bit more about this. Um, like people who like to do powerlifting and then do like box jumps and then do like depth jumps or, you know, whatever the thing that they are like, okay, well I'm doing this thing heavy. And if I do it fast, it's kind of like conjugate, like, what are your thoughts on that? So I think, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking on this from a perspective of someone who's tried pretty much everything there is to try in a powerlifting context, right? Like I've run pretty much every program there is to run. I've been coached in pretty much every style there is to be coached in. And I think it has to be, it's the right tool for the right job. And it has to be context specific. And then it also has to be overlaid with this idea of specificity, right? And so we first have to remember that jumps, especially in people with a low degree of physical competency are pretty fatiguing because you're super fucking bad. And I see something that a lot of people, yeah, is that like, am I going to prescribe box jumps for most powerlifters? No, because they suck at moving. They're powerlifters, right? And it's like, what's probably going to carry over to the sport better and what's probably going to have that person be in less pain long-term would be like squatting fast, doing dynamic efforts because you're practicing the actual sports skill. You're still training that quality and speed but it's in something that's going to directly one-to-one -one correlate to our actual competition patterns. So I think the value of this kind of stuff is overstated. And I think it's, uh, there's some stuff that we can carry over from like sports specific strength and conditioning to powerlifting. And I think it's beneficial. And I think a lot of that comes down to periodization of just like understanding that we're, you know, we're going to bias certain qualities at certain times of the year. And then we're going to bias other qualities at other times of the year, but like depth jumps, box jumps, like dude, most people suck at jumping. And the chance of most people who are general population people or normies, like doing a box jump and burning themselves, like you'd be surprised, yeah. right? They're going to skin their knee or they're, you know, they're going to, they're going to land on a hyperextended knee and they're going to bone their meniscus up. Um, have you seen the one? Have you seen the one where the lady goes to do the box jump and it like she lands? Yeah, and they show like the meat. Yeah, well, and it, dude, it was shit like that, right? It's like, and, and I think, um, and I think, you know, I have the ability to make that differentiation too because, like, I did play actual sports at a high level, uh, 
right? And so for me, I'm like, I remember doing those sorts of things when I played football. Uh, I remember doing those sorts of things when I played rugby, but those were to train qualities that, that I didn't get through the barbell. Whereas like we have this ability in powerlifting to train that actual quality with the actual implement that we use in the sport. And so to me, not doing that, you have to then justify that, right? There has to be like a really, really good reason as to why you are doing that. And when you really start to ask those, we'll be like, hey, is there a reason why you're doing box jumps as opposed to dynamic effort squats? Most of the time they can't actually give you and if they give you an answer, it's usually pretty poorly formed and poorly thought out. And you're like, okay, have you thought about like doing it this way? And they're like, well, no. Yeah. Like, okay. So maybe, maybe that's an issue, right? Is is there is uh, a certain thing that happens as a byproduct of social media, which is just like regurgitation, right? Is we see people do stuff and we're like, well, this person I look up to is doing this. So I'm gonna do what this person I look up to is doing. And I and I I realize that because there's also people who copy what I do. And I'll be like, well, why are you doing that? And they're like, well, because I saw you do it. I'm like, okay, but I'm doing it for this reason. What reason are you doing it for? And they're like, I don't know, because I saw you do it. <laughs> uh, how do you feel about something like velocity-based training? So um, I had this conversation actually this week with someone. Um, I think there's a certain cohort of person or a certain type of person who really looks for metrics because they don't trust themselves would they fall under that neurotic category yes okay right and so it's it's you know the kind of person right so they're going to be someone who's like well i need this velocity based training because sometimes i don't accurately you know pick my rpes and i couldn't possibly do percentages because i had too much of a variance on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis in terms of my performance so I need to have this $400 Tendo unit attached to my bar so that the bat can tell me how hard it was, as opposed to just trusting your body and asking yourself after the set and looking at the footage, what do I think that was? Right? And, and it's like, because essentially like neurotic behavior is, I don't trust myself. You just need to tell me what's going on. You just need to tell me this. You just need to give me what I need. Right, because it's essentially externalizing your anxiety and saying, "I don't trust myself. I'm struggling with this. I need someone else to just tell me what to do because I don't, I don't uh, trust or believe in what I'm telling myself." Do you think there's a good way for? Because I mean, the archetype, of, the archetype of human that you've been describing this whole time, like the Seattle tech bro, also tends to be more like that. Yes. So. Do you feel like there is something that those people could do to help with that trait neuroticism to like help bring that down a bit? Or do you think that's something that they're just kind of like stuck with? Uh, I I really don't like as someone who was neurotic for a long period of time in my own training, I do not think it's an unfixable trait. Uh, But I think much more commonly what happens is people don't see it as an issue, Right. And so what I typically tell people is if you are really just a like go by fuel kind of guy, maybe tracking a little bit more metrics might give you more insight into your own trait. If you are a very neurotic person, purposefully spending time tracking zero metrics may actually help. Right. And so it's essentially whatever they have, just give them the output. So if they have this 
over-analytical, super-critical brain saying, hey, you know what? You don't actually get any info. You just have to learn to trust yourself. And then for the people who are like, I don't know, I'm just going to go and lift. Giving those people some metrics, you, you start to tell them like, okay, well, we have this and we have this, and these two metrics correlate to this, which is the outcome. So maybe if we look at these two, in addition to how we're feeling, we can get a better understanding of how we respond to training and, and what trends are occurring. You know, like, okay, well, I can do that, right? Like, you have to show the utility to those people. Uh, but what I would say for most people most of the time is like, they don't want to have to do the thinking for themselves, right? Like, that's like, as bad as it sounds to say, like that's that's why continuing education exists. That's why university exists, right? It's, it's like it's also like you're. I, I'm just off putting and thinking to someone else, and I'm just being told what to do, and then I'm just going to do with that information as I please. Uh, and so people can do the same thing in their training, where they're just like they don't trust themselves, but like those who compete at the highest level and those who are the best have this deep implicit trust in their own rating of perception or difficulty. And that's something that if you have a lifter is relatively high level, but they're also relatively moronic, if you can work to get them to trust themselves and to stop relying so much on metrics and to just go by feel, that person will then very quickly move to the next level. Stu, this has been awesome. I know that this could go for a very long time just because you are an untapped wealth of knowledge. Uh, so I'm going to let, I'm going to let you go right now, but I was wondering if there's uh best places for people to check you out. I know you mentioned Kodiak barbell, um, but where else can people find you? Yeah. So, uh, Instagram is pretty much the only social media I have. I have Facebook for like my family and friends. Uh, -huh. So, uh, Stu underscore Kodiakmarvel.com. If you want to check out the services that we have available to offer or the bios for myself or any of the coaches that we have at Kodiak Barbell, uh, Kodiakmarvel.com is the best place to do that. If you want to send me an email about anything kind of work or business related, uh, Stu at Kodiakmarvel.com. And that's it. I'll be sure. I'll be sure to include as much of that as I can in the show notes as well. So be sure to check that out. If you guys like this episode, be sure to like it, share it with some people. There's lots of people that would benefit from hearing the things that came out of Stu's mouth today. So be sure to share it and uh, write us a review. If you like this episode, let us know. So again, Stu, thanks for, for being on and uh, hopefully we get you on again in the future. Hell yeah, dude.